Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, The Life in 147 Days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get started. Day 35, Tuesday, June 19th, 2001. I met Dave and he was a sweetheart. Adrian's journal entry dated June 25th, 2001. Paulina, the caseworker from IHSS, arrives promptly at 11.30 in the morning. She needs to know what I do for Adrian and how long it takes me to do it, a formal assessment to determine if we are eligible for the services. I worry this visit will be a repeat of the welfare office five years ago. However, Paulina seems concerned. She says she will do whatever she can to help us get the maximum amount but she never says what that is. We sit at the kitchen table as she explains. If we qualify, Adrian is essentially my boss and she will need to sign my timesheet. Adrian chuckles. I decide not to question the legality of a minor being my employer. Paulina asks numerous questions, each one beginning with, how long does it take you to do X? Thrilled our roles have changed, Adrian participates in the meeting. Dishes take up at least 20 minutes every day, she says. Sissy helps me bathe every night, too. She has to tape up my line, which takes a lot of time. I used to give Adrian an allowance for her chores. Now she will give me a salary for doing the same task and more. It's like the movie Freaky Friday with a sick twist. I remember reading one booklet. The sick child should continue doing his chores in order to maintain a normal routine. What a joke. Normal left us 35 days ago. A check arrives several weeks later, but since Paulina backdated the application, we were officially approved on June 6th. A form printed on legal size, cheap carbon copy paper explains in detail how I spend 73.7 hours per month taking care of Adrian. The precise breakdown of the task amuses me. According to IHSS, each week it takes me 2.33 hours to prepare meals, 1.17 hours to clean up after meals, 0.83 hours to shop for food, do other errands, and wash clothes, 2.33 hours to care for bowels and bladder, 1.75 hours to assist with respiration, 1.75 hours to feed and dress Adrian, 1.05 hours to help Adrian in and out of bed, seats, and our vehicle, 4.67 hours to bathe and groom Adrian, and 0.69 hours to transport her to medical appointments. Multiply the total 4.33 and then add an extra two hours per month for additional domestic services. The person who came up with this formula must have been a man. If I could accomplish all those things in 73.7 hours per month, I would be a speed freak, a superhero, or an alien. IHSS pays me less than $250 every two weeks after taxes. Not much, but it helps. 
Adrian takes a two-hour nap after Paulina leaves. When she wakes up, she has a fever of 99.5 degrees. No nausea, though. We have to be at NBC Studios in 45 minutes. Adrian looks tired, but I don't dare suggest we don't go. She is busy dusting her face with glitter powder and already changed into her favorite t-shirt, which has a picture of Anna Vug, a webcam star, on it. Eli shows up wearing Adrian's old t-shirt, a smiling Mickey Mouse wearing a red suit and matching top hat, dancing on top of the world's Walt Disney's World on Ice. I bought that shirt for Adrian when she was 10, yet it fits Eli. He's a skinny kid. Eli reminds me of the character Edward Scissorhands. Minus the scissors, of course, but with the same crazy hair. Adrian loves that movie. Classic Tim Burton, her favorite director. Located on Bob Hope Drive, NBC is less than 10 minutes from our house. I pull into the gate. We are on the list along with five other missing people. Says here you have eight guests, the guard comments. He peers into my CRX, a car that seats two people. Eli lies in the back. I want to joke about the others hiding in my non-existent trunk by wearing Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. Instead, I say, sorry about that. There are only three of us. The guard shrugs. Park over there. He points toward the general parking lot. Have fun. I plan to drop Adrian and Eli off at the front entrance because I worry the walk will be too long for her. Then I see a golf cart following me. The driver motions for me to park, so I do. He drives us to the studio where we are treated like royalty. The driver hands us off to a page who escorts us to the green room, a waiting room for the show's guest. Only no celebrities are in here. Adrian sits down and sips Gatorade and water while Eli and I indulge in the munchies. I try to entice Adrian into eating one of the perfectly ripe strawberries, but she refuses. No appetite. Typical after a round of chemo. Another page takes us to our seats. Adrian and Eli sit in the second row with her in the aisle seat. I sit directly behind her. Our seats are house left, stage right, in front of where all the musical guests perform. Adrian spins around in the swirly chairs. As the rest of the audience filters in, I make her put on her thin yellow mask. The sign at the hospital says Adrian has to wear her mask in public, especially when surrounded by strangers. At four o'clock sharp, the show starts. Over the speaker, we hear Ed Hall's booming voice. Tonight, Jay welcomes coach of the world champion LA Lakers, Phil Jackson. Thundering applause. The Lakers won their second national championship last week. And from the new movie, The Fast and the Furious, actress Michelle Rodriguez. Who? The music of Dave Navarro. High pitched screams of delight. And now, Jay Leno. Jay strolls out, shaking hands as people rush the stage. At the last minute, Adrian runs up, but she doesn't get to the stage in time. The music fades out as Jay steps back to begin his opening monologue. Jay discusses the recent blackouts in Los Angeles. I've been so focused on Adrian, I forgot about LA's current power crisis. It seems like we have one every year. Like today, the temperature rises to over 100 degrees. People blast their air conditioning. Boom. Lights out. Burbank has its own power supply, so our lights have stayed on. Adrian nods off when Jay talks about the Lakers. LA doesn't have a professional football team, so we hang our athletic hopes on the Lakers and the Dodgers. We get so excited when our precious Lakers win, we throw them a parade. 
It was yesterday. I love basketball, even the Lakers, but a parade? Jay jokes only the unemployed showed up because who could get off work on a Monday to attend a parade? People laugh. More jokes and news of the day follow. The first ever hip-hop summit occurred. Former President Clinton played golf with Jack Nicholson. And Melissa Etheridge admitted in her new book that Brad Pitt, not David Crosby, was the first choice for a sperm donor for her children with her former life partner. Judging by the noise, the audience loves that comment. Who wouldn't want Brad Pitt? He could turn a straight man gay by removing his shirt, or a gay woman straight. Then Jay says, According to a new study, 60% of doctors lie to their seriously ill patients when they ask how long they have to live. I sit up and lean in. Really want to know the truth? Schedule your next appointment six months from now. If your doctor goes, yeah, right, then you know. Hey, Jay shrugs. People laugh. My stomach turns over. With Jay's timing, delivery, and physical gestures, the joke is funny. I would have stickered myself six weeks ago, but now all I can think is, who are these doctors? I look around. Why are people still laughing? A commercial break. A page asks Adrian if she needs anything. Some matzo crackers would be great, she says. She feels nauseous. After a segment called Badly Named Products, there is another commercial break. The page brings Adrian a brand new box of matzo crackers and a bottle of water. Did someone run to the store and buy the crackers for her? If we were in a restaurant, I would give a huge tip. In most places in Los Angeles, this level of service does not exist. Phil Jackson walks on stage. He towers over Jay by six inches or more. I knew Phil was a former basketball player, but he does not look that tall on TV. Jay suggests Phil wear all ten of his national championship rings at one time. Go out like Mr. T, says Jay. Besides reveling in the Lakers' recent victory, Phil is promoting his new book, More Than a Game. Jay says nice things about it. The antithesis of David Letterman, Jay radiates optimism and kindness. If he doesn't have anything positive to say about a celebrity's new book, movie, TV show, or album, he doesn't say anything at all. Yet he always finds something nice to say and manages to sound genuine. Makes me wonder if he ever spent time in the South. We Southerners strive to be pleasant people. Adrian slept during most of Phil's time, but she forces herself to wake up as the prospect of Dave's appearance nears. Musical guests perform at the end of the show. Unfortunately, we have to suffer through Michelle Rodriguez first. Wearing a black denim vest as a shirt and black leather pants, Michelle plops down the seat next to Jay. I notice the third button on her vest is about to pop because the garment is too small for her. Maybe she is nervous, but Michelle tries too hard to be cool by sniffing her armpits and dismissing her bad behavior in school. We suffer through her giggling. Finally, Jay says, we'll be back with Dave Navarro. John says Adrian has a Jesus thing with rock stars. Dave Navarro, Chris Cornell, and Trent Reznor. They all resemble the Son of God. She discovered their music on her own, but it was John who introduced Adrian to the rock star who became her God, Freddie Mercury of Queen. During her first year at middle school, Adrian tried hard to fit in with others. Her friends consisted of three girls who had known each other since kindergarten. Adrian was the new kid. She joined Spirit Squad, a precursor to cheerleading, because they did. 
She dressed in pastels, collared shirts, and wore khakis, because they did. Looking back, I think she let her infamous bangs grow out because her friends didn't have bangs. I could see her struggling to find a balance between her new friend's taste and her own identity. Adrian already knew what type of music she liked, but her friends didn't listen to K-Rock. She listened to their music, pop music. Her favorite boy band became 98 Degrees, a slight deviation from the more popular Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. John teased her even when I pointed out every decade has its share of boy bands. The Beatles just had more talent and lasted longer. John let the issue go until he heard, Yo, I tell you what I want, what I really, really want, blasting through her speakers. Oh, no, he said. Not the Spice Girls. No way. That's when he introduced her to Freddie. The obsession developed slowly. She bought Queen albums and videos. She accumulated 140 pictures of Freddie Mercury and taped some of them to her bedroom walls. She joined the Queen International Fan Club. When an extra $80 showed up on the phone bill, Adrian claimed she didn't know it was an international call, even though the club is located in London. She took months to pay off that debt with her small allowance. For her 12th birthday, Adrian wanted in honor of Freddie on her birthday cake. I didn't see the harm in it. Her favorite songs were Killer Queen and Another One Bites the Dust. She read Freddie Mercury's biography, The Show Must Go On. Her devotion to Queen didn't seem unusual for a preteen girl, so I never worried about it. Then I found the note a few months later on a dry, hot day in August 1998. During that particular summer, 12-year-old Adrian spent most days at the Boys and Girls Club while John and I were at work. I had three jobs that summer, so I expected Adrian to help more around the house. Tired of not being able to see her floor, I insisted she clean her room. She was about to visit our mother in Alabama for three weeks, and she needed to do her laundry and pack. I gave her an ultimatum. She had a week, or I would do it myself. Seven days passed, and she did nothing. I marched into her room on the eighth day, trash bag in hand, and sorted through the piles of paper, clothes, CDs, and other junk littering the floor. The note was buried deep. It was one page, typed, and single-spaced. The title compelled me to sit down. In all caps, it read, Suicide Note Slash Apology. I, Adrian Wilson, have committed suicide. I have not been murdered. I have done this as a sacrifice to my only and ultimate God, Freddie Mercury. Let me explain. For almost half a year now, I have been a member of a religion that I invented. The God in this religion is Freddie Mercury. The note continued with what this religion gave Adrian and how she would like to be cremated with her ashes spread over Freddie's house in London. Halfway through, it became a will stating who should get what. Adam would get her room. I would get most of her artwork. I don't remember when my body started trembling or when the tears started pouring down my face. I do remember my primeval screaming of, no, no, no. I called John at work. He didn't believe me at first. Hysterical, I yelled at him, listen to this. I read most of the note to him until he stopped me. I'm coming home. Then I called in sick. I was supposed to work that afternoon. Waiting for John, I read Adrian's journals at the kitchen table. She was always writing in them. I had never invaded her privacy before. 
lines jumped out at me. I am planning my suicide for November 24th, 1998. I am not committing my suicide this year, but I will on the same day in whatever year Freddie wants me to. Why do I know that date? Then I remembered Freddie Mercury died from complications due to AIDS on November 24th, 1991. As her obsession grew, the journal injuries increased from a few times a week to every day to several times a day. I'm beginning to frighten myself with my obsession. Sissy is a hypocritical bitch. I hate her as much as mom, if not more. How did this happen? What did I do wrong? What now? As John came home and read everything, we decided to wait for Adrian instead of picking her up. She walked home from the Boys and Girls Club in the late afternoon. We were going to confront her, an intervention of sorts. We left the note and her journals on the kitchen table where she would see them right away. We sat and watched the clock. I kept thinking, the note never mentioned how Adrian planned to do it. Should I remove any razor blades from the house? What about pills? I thought about the book my best friend and I talked about writing in high school, 101 Ways to Kill Yourself. Our theory was most people didn't get it right the first time, so they should combine methods, pills and carbon monoxide, or heroin and a gun like Kurt Cobain. We were halfway kidding, just crazy teenager talk. Nothing like Adrian's note, which seemed sincere, purposeful, definite. Adrian saw both cars in the driveway, so she must have known something was wrong. She walked in nonchalantly. What's up? She asked. Sit down, I said, as John remained silent. I pushed the note across the table. We need to talk about this. First, she feigned surprise as if she didn't type the note. I expected that reaction. In her journals, she stated her greatest sin was lying. Then Adrian switched to anger. How dare I go through her things? Finally, she broke down. Sobbing, she admitted it was true. The suicide plan, the religion, and the obsession she couldn't stop. We hugged her. Looking at John, I knew we needed help. This thing was bigger than us. I grabbed the yellow pages and looked for therapists who specialized in teenagers. Despite the notarized document signed by our mother giving me temporary custody, no one would treat Adrian because I didn't have legal custody of her. Finally, the Center for Individual and Family Counseling agreed to see Adrian while I worked on the custody situation. I explained to Adrian that her first appointment, called an intake, was scheduled for the following week. Next, I called our mother and canceled Adrian's trip to Alabama. Adrian could not get on that plane tomorrow. I feared she would hurt herself since our mother never paid attention. An emergency has come up, I said. No, she can't come out this summer, maybe later. The ticket will be good for a year. The ticket expired. Adrian decided to never see our mother again. I didn't tell our mother what happened because I knew she would blame me. Hell, I blamed myself. Adrian can't wait to see Dave Navarro's sweat. He appears out of nowhere. A hushed silence falls over the audience. The lights bounce off his all-black attire, wife beater shirt, leather pants, and leather boots. Tattoos cover his arms. Most of them are black, too. His blue sequined wristbands, silver chain-link necklace, and white electric guitar complement his black wardrobe and dark features. The lyrics from his hit single, Rexall, pour out of his mouth. I hate my life. I hate my life. I never want another wife. I want the life you think I have. 
Dave coaxes his guitar into a riff at the end of the song. He finishes by tossing his guitar behind him as if it means nothing on the zebra pattern rug that covers the makeshift stage. Rushing a few stairs to the real stage, Dave sits for his turn with Jay. They discuss cars and motorcycles. Jay asks about Dave's mini tattoos. Dave replies, I was 17 and thought I was cool. Jay wishes Dave a happy birthday. It was on June 7th. The numbers are tattooed on Dave's knuckles. Six, seven, six, seven. Jay props up Dave's solo album, Trust No One, on his blue mug and sings its praises. Then the show ends. Phil, Michelle, and Dave leave the stage. Jay asked us on a commercial break if we wanted to take pictures with him after the show. So a page takes us on stage to meet Jay. Adrian looks at me. I nod and she takes off her mask. A photographer from NBC says, smile, an unnecessary request because all of us are beaming. Flash, flash. I hope I didn't blink. Jay asks, are you a big fan of David's? Huge, says Adrian. Jay laughs and gives her the Trust No One CD. Then he says, oh, so you came to see the cool rock star, not the dorky host, huh? Adrian hesitates because she doesn't want to be rude. Well, yeah. Jay laughs again. Well, hold on a second. He grabs a page. Bring Mr. Navarro out to the stage because a young lady would like to meet him. I didn't think it was possible for Adrian's smile to get any bigger, but I swear I can see her back molars now. I silently thank Jay for making Adrian's dream come true. Like most celebrities, Dave Navarro is smaller in person than he appears on TV. He is the epitome of the skinny rocker guy with charisma oozing out of his pores. When he first meets Adrian, she can't speak. I nudge her. I'm Adrian. Remember me? We talked online. I'm the girl who got sick. Adrian said she and Dave talked online many times, but I never believed her. I figured she was chatting with someone pretending to be Dave Navarro. I didn't think celebrities took the time to talk one-on-one -on -one with their fans. I was wrong. Dave remembers her. Eli, Adrian, Dave, and I pose for the camera. Flash. One more, says the photographer. Flash. I notice Dave doesn't smile, but Adrian does, with and without teeth. As we stand there, Dave rubs Adrian's back with his right hand. Not in a weird way. It almost seems like a habit. Maybe it's his way of connecting with people. Adrian doesn't care. Her idol is touching her, comforting her. This is for you, says Adrian. She hands Dave a letter she rewrote at least 10 times. I want you to have my talisman too. It kept me going in the hospital. She takes off her fairy necklace, her good luck charm. Aw, thanks, but are you sure? I mean, do you really want to part with this? Asks Dave. Adrian smiles. I'll feel better knowing you have it. As she puts the necklace in his hand, she sees the sparkling blue sequins. Your wristbands are the same color my hair used to be. Dave jumps on her comment. Here, here, take them, please. Dave peels off the wristbands, which are wet with perspiration. Adrian says thank you over and over. While Adrian and Dave are talking, I thank Jay and then wander over to the other side of the stage where the band plays. The band leader, Kevin Eubanks, introduces himself. I thank him too, since he is responsible for procuring some of the many tickets we got for the show. What kind of cancer does she have? He asks. 
I explain what it is and what's happened so far. Then Kevin asks, what's the prognosis? I hate that question. I look at him. I can feel my throat closing, water rushing into my eyes. Not good, I say. His body jerks, his eyes widen. He looks at Adrian, who is talking, laughing, standing. She's so alive. She doesn't look sick. I nod. I know. I follow Kevin's eyes. We watch Dave as he hugs Adrian and gives her a big kiss on the cheek. It must be time to go. Eli, Adrian, and I are ushered out of the building through the artist's entrance. I tell Adrian to put her mask back on as we walk outside. Dave watches while his people load his musical equipment and a black limo waits for him. A famous collector, Jay's red 1920s indie race cars parked right next to the door. We take more pictures with our camera this time. Sissy, the mask? You have to keep it on, I say with my don't argue with me voice. I know she is frowning underneath the mask because her eyebrows scrunch together. I'm sorry for bugging you for more pictures, says Adrian to Dave. No, it's no big deal. Don't worry. Look, I've got your necklace on. He even poses for a shot with Adrian's letter in his mouth. Take care of yourself, okay? Dave says as he gives her one last hug. Adrian nods and smiles. Our limo, a golf cart, shuttles us back to my car. I don't remember talking much on the way home except for Adrian saying how green Dave's eyes are. I think Eli is jealous because he says nothing. Ever since Dave touched her, Adrian has ignored Eli. She doesn't mean to. She is caught up in the moment. I don't say that to Eli, but I hope he understands. Adrian needed today to happen. Meeting Dave did more for her than chemo did. Fuck no change. There is a change in her spirit. Adrian seems happier, more hopeful. She wants to live. Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. I will never forget that day when Adrian met Dave Navarro for the first time. It was so incredible. <laughs> it really was. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for tomorrow's episode. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>